Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's going on? What is happening? I'm Rich Roll. I am your host. This is the podcast, episode 185. Can you believe that? 185 episodes. Uh, the podcast where I sit down with the outliers, the big forward thinkers across all categories of positive paradigm-breaking culture change. Why do I do this? To help all of us, myself included, unlock and unleash our best most authentic selves. So thank you so much for subscribing, subscribing. Yeah, I can talk (laughs) to the show for giving us a review and for always making sure to use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. The banner ad's right there on the main podcast page. doesn't cost you anything extra. You just click on it and then whatever you get on Amazon, we get credited. They don't charge you. It comes out of Amazon's pocket. It's just a great, really easy, free way to support the mission. And thank you so much to everybody who has made a habit out of doing this. It really does make a big difference. So thank you. We appreciate it. Today, I've got Silesh Rayo on the show today. He is an environmentalist, an engineer, a technologist. He's doing some really interesting things out in the world. And I'm going to get a little bit more into him and his background in a minute. But before that, two things I want to cover. Two things. First thing, apologies for the podcast being late this week. I am so sorry. But right now, it's the middle of the night somewhere outside of Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, I'm in Europe. It's been a very busy last few days. Arrived here a couple days ago. Uh, I'm here for the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is the largest international book market uh, in the world. And I'm here to do press around the launch of the Plant Power Way, which comes out in uh, a German language edition, which is really exciting. Uh, But it's been kind of a demanding last couple days of acclimating to the time change and and doing a bunch of press, et cetera. Uh, By the way, check out the book. It's now available at amazon.de for those of you who want to uh, get a German language edition. It came out really beautiful, really proud of it. Uh, Narayana Verlag, our German publisher, they are amazing. Julie and I are going to talk a little bit more about our experience working with these guys on the next AMA podcast, but uh, just trust me that it's been really cool working with these people. Uh, But there's been a lot going on. We've been running around quite a bit uh, and, you know, not to mention trying to adjust to an eight hour time change. So I am apologizing for the podcast being late. It's the first time that that's happened in an extremely long time. So I'm sorry. And the second thing I want to say is, uh, before we get into Silesh, is let's take care of some business really quick. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, you guys, so this week's show, I'm going to keep this intro really brief because it's like the middle of the night. Uh, I'm in the middle of nowhere in Germany. I'm extremely jet lagged and tired, uh, but this is a really exciting show. I don't want to put a damper on just how amazing today's guest is. Silas Rao is the executive director of a nonprofit called Climate Healers, climatehealers.org. He's the author of a book called Carbon Dharma. 
The Occupation of Butterflies. Really interesting book. Uh, and by training, he is an electrical engineer, uh, a technologist. He's got a PhD from Stanford University. And very interestingly, uh, his technology career involved working very intensely on the very early iterations of the internet, which is fascinating. He did that both at AT&T Bell Labs and at Intel. Uh, and at some point in his career, he was moved to action to address the global climate challenge. And in 2007, he was moved to found Climate Healers. And the goal of Climate Healers, among many things, but its primary goal really is aimed at reforestation. Uh, it's got a lot of projects going on. They partner with NGOs, with tribal villages, and school clubs to help low-income areas, particularly in India, use solar rather than wood-burning stoves, which is a big focus of today's conversation. It's an interesting little niche thing, you would think, but actually it's a huge problem, uh, the sort of carbon footprint incident to wood-burning stoves and the millions of people that are using them and the work that Silesh is doing to find more sustainable, uh, sort of environmental-friendly ways of, of, of people preparing food in their homes. So Silesh is a really interesting, thoughtful guy. He's doing amazing, important, interesting work. So let's pay him a visit, step into his world, and see what he has to say. Enjoy. I'm looking forward to getting into so many of the interesting things uh, that you're doing, and welcome to Los Angeles. You live in Phoenix, yeah? Yes, I do. Uh -huh. What brought you out here other than the podcast? Do you have other business here? I'm on my way back to Phoenix. Oh, you are? a long trip, yes. Uh, where have you, well, I know you were in Paris. Have you right. been, where else have you been? Before that, I was in India. Uh -huh. From Phoenix to India, and then India to Paris, Paris to San Francisco, and now San Francisco to LA. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite a uh, road trip. Are you, are you a little road weary? Yeah. Yeah, very good. Looking forward to going home tomorrow. All right. Well, if you need some caffeine, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't take <laughs> okay. any caffeine. <laughs> All right. I didn't think so. Um, well, you have such an interesting story, and I want to get into all of the advocacy work and, and you know, talk about climate healers and, and all the work you're doing in India. But maybe the best place is to start start at the beginning. You grew up in you grew up in India, of course, right? Yes. yes. Uh huh. And um, and and was sort of raised as a lacto vegetarian from the get go. Is that right. correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh huh. So and we were, so that was just something your parents did, or or how did that kind of come about? Yeah, we were about? Brahmins. You know, Brahmins. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all of us are lacto vegetarians. Mm -hmm. So it is the ahimsa tradition. Right, the ahimsa, do no harm. Do no harm, tradition. Right, yes. And and it sounds like, you know, from poking around the internet and what I've read, that, you know, you had a pretty, you had a, a you know, sort of a normal childhood, <laughs> right? Yes. This is true. Yes. And you came to the United States eventually for your graduate work. You got a PhD at Stanford. That's correct. Uh huh. In electrical engineering. That's correct. And then, uh, and then found yourself uh, in, in the world of Silicon Valley. Well, I was actually in New Jersey. Oh, you but were? doing silicon design, yeah. I see. So you worked for Bell Labs originally? Right. Uh-huh. Right. And then Intel? Bell Labs, and then I started my own company called Silicon Design Experts, mm -hmm. which got acquired by Level 1 Communications, mm -hmm. which got acquired by Intel. Wow, that's nice. <laughs> Very good. That's good. So, so essentially, you know, sort of uh, in terms of, of being an entrepreneur and, and being a, an engineer, you're sort of retired, yes, from that? Right, yeah. Uh -huh. And, and I, I'm interested in exploring 
the evolution away from you know being a tech entrepreneur and into the world of environmentalism like how, what sparked that for you well uh it's sort of like the dog that catches the car and then discovers that what to do right mm-hmm. so you you have ambitions as an engineer you say i want to do something significant and um uh i did the standard called gigabit ethernet which was the basis for the internet backbone mm-hmm. and the internet took off and so i said okay i achieved what i wanted to do in engineering but it isn't what i thought it was what did you think that it would be i don't know i mean i thought it was you know that i would feel much better about it but then i noticed that my um you know my I'd spent so much time working on that that my family life had suffered. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was beginning to question what am I doing with this? Right. And and what you were doing specifically in layman's terms was really working on uh oh I didn't turn my phone off. Well, sorry about that. Um <clears throat> was working on uh on on chip design is that accurate? I was working on the backbone of the internet. So this is what connects switches to each other and switches to computers. Mhm. So this was the hardware infrastructure for the internet. Right. So uh, it, it, so in many ways you are one of the inventors of the internet. No, I'm not even going to touch that. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let Al Gore uh, <laughs> let Al Gore have it. That. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, but you were involved in the early days of of pioneering uh, the technology that kind of powers the internet. Is that That's correct. Yeah. We were you know we were a pretty collegial group at that time. We were mm-hmm. we didn't really realize that the internet was going to be such so big. What did people think at that time? You know, I mean, you imagine in 1996 Cisco was like a billion dollar company. That was the biggest company around. Mhm. And what was in the among the companies that were working on the internet. So we thought maybe it'll be a little bit bigger than it was. Right. And we never really thought it was going to take off like it did in 2001. Uh-huh. So if you had known that would you have done things differently? <laughs> Who knows? A lot of people would. Yeah, <laughs> a lot right. of people would. Have, yeah. yeah, exactly, right. Right. All right, so the the dog catches the car and you're kind of doing an inventory on your on your life and trying to right. figure out what's important. <clears throat> right. And so where does kind of the environmental awareness start to, you know, crop up for you? So it started with the coming home from work one day uh, and I had a company doing 10 gigabit ethernet at that time. and switching on the tv and there was al gore talking about climate change mm-hmm. he was basically doing a slide show uh in front of a live audience in in san francisco and someone had taped it mm-hmm. and they were showing the tape on tv on link tv it was it was kind of his keynote that ultimately led to the movie right, right. it was before But the movie before the movie yeah it was before the movie uh-huh. and it was It was actually a small group of maybe 50 people in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And Link TV had uh, taped it and they were showing it on uh, uh on satellite. So I I turned it on and I I couldn't get off the couch. I was so mesmerized by what he was saying. And after he finished, I told my wife if even half of what he said is true, I'm wasting my time, mm. you know, working on 10 gigabit ethernet. Mhm. So I decided to study the problem. I'm like a systems guy, you know, I'm basically mm-hmm. do systems work and to me that was the biggest systems problem around. And I realized that the kind of legacy I leave our children, we leave our children um 
it's got nothing to do with money if mm-hmm. this is going on mm-hmm. you know so uh within 3 months i realized that it's far worse than what mr gore is saying uh, because he only touches on the energy issue mm-hmm. so it's a whole another so it's like you know someone talking about just the fever when there is a cancer going on in the body mm-hmm. so i told my wife that we have to close our company and she agreed mm wow so so we closed it within 3 months and i wrote to mr gore and i said how can i help you and i didn't hear back from him for like 6 months right how do you even know where to send the <laughs> i know email I lo- or a letter or like how did yeah, you even yeah i sent a letter actually <laughs> Uh-huh. Because I didn't have an email address. Yeah. But I could find an office address. The guy who's working on the internet doesn't <laughs> doesn't have his own email address? What year is this? <laughs> It was 2006. Oh my god, come on. So then uh, uh-huh. I found a physical address for him and I wrote to him, wrote to the office of Mr. Right. Gore, right? right. And I got a reply back like six months later. Uh, basically asking if I would come and get trained by him. Mm-hmm. And to give this presentation. Right so he was kind of uh dispatching uh lieutenants out in the world right. to kind of give the talk that he was giving so it could kind of spread a little bit more virally right uh-huh. yeah right so, so you became one of those people right i was in the second batch that he trained right and um then you know as part of that you agreed to give that presentation 10 times over the next year and we, i did that and then i started uh climate healers right But while you're doing this, you know, you're sort of you're giving his talk, right? So you're right. kind of talking about the fever as you're, you know, going home and deepening your research and realizing that there's a cancer underneath this that right. is going under addressed. Right. But even when I was giving his talk, I did add slides. I mean, he he said it's okay to personalize your slides mm-hmm. because you're talking to a person, you know, you're talking to your friends and your community, right? So you have to personalize it to that situation. So I did add slides about the cancer mm-hmm. <laughs> right from the beginning. And the cancer is the cancer is really uh human overconsumption in many ways, you know, mainly the consumption of animal foods because that's the biggest impact on the planet. Mm-hmm. And then other consumption also if we sort of propagate that kind of consumption throughout the whole world, the planet cannot tolerate that. Right. Yeah. So let's just lay a little bit of foundation here because we're kind of getting into the world of industrialized animal agriculture and the impact of that uh on the planet and you know for listeners out there they know you know that I had Kip and Keegan in from Cowspiracy we talked at length mm-hmm. about this but if somebody's new and they're unfamiliar or they haven't seen that film um you know let's let's like sort of paint the picture if you will. Right. Um I mean if you look at the overall situation right now it is fundamentally unsustainable because sustainability means that the earth can maintain something for the foreseeable future right and for the past um I think it's like 2 million years or so the biomass of megafauna has been stable at around 200 million metric tons megafauna mm-hmm. or all animals greater than 25 kg in weight mm-hmm. okay so it has been it has been pretty stable at 200 million metric tons and then we come along and our weight the weight of human beings alone is 360 million metric tons mm-hmm. right now while megafauna has dwindled to 40 million metric tons so mm-hmm. we have basically destroyed 80% of them in terms of total biomass and livestock 
is around 1.1 billion metric tons. Mm-hmm. So clearly, you know, if you were to say, how do you become sustainable? You you have to get rid of livestock. I mean, it's mm-hmm. there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The UN agrees with that. The UN had this uh, UN Environmental Program had an International Council on Sustainable Resource Management, and they said that a global transition to a vegan diet is vital to save the world from hunger, fuel poverty, and the worst Im- worst effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the reason for that. Because it's like you're a, it's like a man holding a, holding a weight that's three times his weight, and then discovers that he's in quicksand and he's sinking. The first thing you do is throw away the weight you're carrying, right? Right. But we're trying to figure out a way to still hold on to the weight and not sink. Right. Right. And convincing ourselves that there's there's a solution to this fundamental problem that defies the laws of physics. It's the laws of biology, <laughs> biology, basically. Yeah, right. right. The ecosystems, yeah. Right. So in terms of statistics, I mean, what is the impact of this, you know, this biomass of, of livestock? I mean, I know, you know, there's certain statistics that, that you know, you learn about in Cowspiracy, like <clears throat> 45% of the right. earth's, you know, non-ice land mass is covered with live, is covered with, is, is for livestock, including grazing grounds, I think, right? right? yeah. And statistics like it takes 660 gallons of water to produce a quarter pound of hamburger and a thousand gallons of water to produce one gallon of milk. And I think it's one to two uh, football fields worth of acreage is lost every second in the rainforest due to clearing it for livestock. Right. I mean, the statistic, if you look at the UN IPCC, um, AR5, which is... The, the fifth report, fifth assessment report. Mm-hmm. Uh, in working group three, chapter 11, you know, they go through all of this in detail. So um, the amount of grasslands used for livestock covers 35% of the land area of the planet. Mm. And then half the cropland is being used for livestock. So mm-hmm. that's another 10%. Right, to feed these animals. Right, so that's where the 45% comes from, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, if you look at the total amount of biomass that's going to feed livestock, it, it's, it gets reduced by a factor of 26 before it becomes food for human systems. What does that explain what that means? It means that there's 26 calories going into livestock to get one calorie out. Right. So it's, it's the definition of inefficiency. Exactly. It's only 4% efficient in that sense. Mm-hmm. So when people really talk about protein conversion, they're talking about just the protein. They don't talk about the overall calories that are going in. And that includes, I mean, that average is, that's an average including eggs, milk, meat, all put together. Mm-hmm. If we just look at beef, it's like 65 to 1. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it is very efficient in the U.S. because it's like 50-something to 1, 55 to 1 or something like that in the U.S. And it's like 110 to 1 in, uh, in developing world. And it's, it's, the number is different in the U.S. because we have our system down so locked in in terms of how we uh, create economies of scale around our agriculture, right? Like right. Just, the animal is only alive the shortest amount of time possible before right. it's slaughtered, et cetera. Right, and they're not allowed to move too much, so they're mm-hmm. sitting around, I mean, so that they don't waste energy in movement. Mm-hmm. So there are so all kinds of optimization done, but it's really uh, tremendously cruel to the animals to do that. In the developing world, they let the animals run around and graze, and so they're wasting energy walking around, you mm-hmm. know. 
that is uh, in the US all the uh, most of the food that's eaten they want it to become muscle mm-hmm. as much as possible right so that's why the energy conversion ratio is is less in the US okay so water use inefficiencies in terms of calories uh rainforest destruction yeah what else is going on so it's uh, uh, there is deforestation going on which is what uh, the UN usually points out and i mean it's like 20 25 million acres per year but is there is also desertification going on which not many people talk about explain the difference between deforestation and desertification so deforestation is when you take a forest and you clear cut it and then you convert that into grassland or you convert that into soy uh, cropland or something like that mm-hmm. um but over time that this the carbon in the soil disappears so the soil basically becomes less and less fertile because it used to hold a forest mm-hmm. right and as the soil becomes less and less fertile you discover that you can't grow so much soy so you start pouring more and more chemicals to get the soy to grow mm-hmm. and and then the soil basically becomes uh, infertile mm-hmm. and it turns into desert Mm-hmm. So that process so at the end there is desertification going on you know from the grasslands and from the cropland and the amount of desertification is is greater if not i mean equal at least if not greater than the amount of land that's becoming deforested oh that's interesting i didn't know that right mm-hmm. so there is even a, so there is an entire un um uh sister organization to the UNFCCC which only looks at desertification so it's i think it's called the UNCCD mm-hmm. convention to combat desertification mm-hmm. so these are their numbers they are saying you know right. 30 million acres is becoming desertified and where year. is that is that localized somewhere or is that sort of it's spread out right it's spread out you know basically the sahara is trying to grow I mean, in in the place that i work in in india we see that happening in the ground you know um like in uh, so i work at the edge of the tar desert which is the tar desert is a desert in rajasthan india mm-hmm. and that's really the tip of the sahara desert mm-hmm. so sahara desert begins in the western part of africa goes all the way into india oh i didn't wow i didn't realize that and it goes all the way into china as the gobi desert mm mm-hmm. So it's one big continuous desert, and if you if you notice, that's the that's the area where the, the civilizations of the world were the ancient civilizations, you know, Egyptian, Sumerian, Babylonian, Persian, Indus Valley, Chinese civilizations. I mean, these are their homes that became the desert, mm-hmm. because they essentially deforested and converted it to cropland or livestock grazing land, and then desertified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's growing right yeah 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 and you watch it at the edge because uh, we are working at the edge of the tar desert and right at the edge of the tar desert is this aravalli hills and the hills have forests on them still but the forests are dying and you can see why they're dying mm-hmm. so and you can see the desertification process happening because they have the people have a lot of livestock because that's their source of energy uh, source of uh, income mm mm-hmm. See, there is no other income for them. They eat what they grow, but they they need anything from the outside world. They need to have some cash. So, how do you get cash? Well, raise some goats, sell the goats, you make money. Mm-hmm. 
And the goats get bought by traders who convert that into mutton. And then they sell the mutton and export it to the Middle East. So it's like the biomass of the forest is being transported to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there they eat the goats and the sewage gets flushed into the ocean. So we have all these open loop systems where the biomass is being removed from land and being flushed into the ocean. Of course you're going to get deserts. Out right. Of this. Right. And it, so by contrast, a closed loop system would mean that the animals that are living there perish there and then their remains go back into the soil. Right. right. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And even the you know the plant biomass as well goes back into the soil. So, right. of so you have to compost it. and put things back into the ground. You know, that would be a cl- closing the loop. Right, 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 right. But you're seeing the desert essentially expanding around right. the perimeter. And right. part of the work that you're doing is trying to stop that momentum and reverse it and start yeah. moving it in the other direction. Exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. And I want to get into that specifically with the work that you're doing. But <clears throat> while we're kind of on the subject of, you know, the, the global impact of animal agriculture, you know, there's other, there's, there's other, there's other things going on too. We have carbon emissions, we have, uh, ocean pollution, we have the algal blooms and, you know, all these right. other things that are happening as well. Right. right. I mean, you know, ex- explain a little bit of that, perhaps. Well, um, it's it's a, just basically a symptom of these open loop systems that we have created. Algal blooms are because of um, overnutrition. So you you if you get a lot of uh, fertilizer in the ocean, you get a lot of plant growth. Mm-hmm. So. And this comes from maybe chemical fertilizers on land. You pour a bunch runoff. of chemical yeah, and the runoff from that goes into the ocean and it fertilizes the ocean um, bottom. And so you get a lot of plant growth. When a lot of plant growth, algal growth happens, it sucks all the oxygen out. And when it sucks all the oxygen out, then there's nothing for the fish to dr- breathe. So they mm-hmm. die. Mm-hmm. So you get dead zones. You right. Know, direct consequence of this. And... Um, so it's all industrialized agriculture, which is mainly being done uh, in the West to feed livestock, you know, essentially results in these things. Right. Yeah. And these are all things that the UN, you know, has written about and right. has been very clearly, you know, kind of articulating to the world our issues that we should be concerned about. But to kind of bring it back to <clears throat> the work that you were initially doing with with Al Gore, I mean, this is sort of a more inconvenient truth, perhaps too inconvenient, right? And so I know that, that you know, he wanted to sort of curtail his message, you know, specific to fossil fuel use, et cetera, um, and, and really didn't want to get into this area, mm-hmm. right? So it's sort of like the elephant in the room that is not being addressed. I mean, if you look back on that experience of you know, kind of being one of his lieutenants, I mean, how do you explain why he didn't want to go there? Um, Al Gore is uh, basically off the current system. He's within the current system, and he's not going to do anything that would upset the current system. The current system is based on economic growth. It's all about growth, okay? And if you suddenly, you know, decide to shrink it... <laughs> That's a that's not a, a politically viable message. Exactly, it's not there. a politically viable message. So when we talk about switching from animal foods to plant-based foods, you're talking about shrinking the footprint of human beings significant amount, 
and thereby re, you know releasing land back to nature to regenerate forests and bring back life mm-hmm. but the economic footprint also shrinks mm-hmm. you see yeah, the the message to consumers is you have to change your your habits not only you know in the kitchen and at, at, at the grocery store but your consumer habits overall which means spending less money or spending your money on different things it's uh it's more than i mean it, you know it, in terms of consumption um the number one thing we need to do is to reduce the consumption of our of animal foods i mean to me that's that's the biggest bang for the buck okay and of course if everybody in the world wants to build 3000 square foot homes there isn't enough mm-hmm. on a, to support something like that you know mm-hmm. or everybody wants a car per person one car per person yeah it's you really don't need one car per person what you need is to be able to transport yourself when you need to right <laughs> right you don't have to have a car in a separate car for each person to do that right but the industry would rather that you do this right the industry would rather that you buy one car per person or you change your phone as if you're changing diapers mm-hmm. okay so this way you get a lot of of circulation right of material and so they get to do a lot of work and they sell you a lot of goods but you create a lot of pollution you get a lot of pollution and you create a lot of ill health and then they can create a lot of drugs to treat all that ill health so right. it's like it's like a never ending vicious cycle right 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 yeah so uh I mean, did you ever, I mean, when you were kind of giving this, you know, Al Gore keynote, I mean, were those, were, were you slipping in some slides about animal agriculture? I mean, how did, did, did you, did you ruffle some feathers in that organization by starting to, you know, think and advocate in this regard? Uh, yeah, we tried to do it internally. We, um, we actually sent him a letter and he basically brushed it off and then um, we did demonstrations in during one of his um his training session mm. and and i think the so message you actually jumped the fence i did sort of yeah, oh, interesting i did um because i think it's very important you know to me it's about healing the climate you see the the story that's being told so far is that climate change is inevitable it's going to get worse and the best thing we can do is to uh hold it steady at a high level of disruption. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean I and I think what, you know, on the consumer end of it, the messages that we're receiving are, you know, take fewer showers, drive a little bit less, uh, you know, sort of tiny little things that really aren't going to make an impact and are not addressing the real problem. Yeah, um it's to get a social movement really we have to change our lifestyles okay so it's, you have to have a social movement to change lifestyles because people consider some things to be normal now and you are going to go to a new normal mm-hmm. right when you change lifestyles to create a social movement like that um uh, you need to get large numbers of people doing the same thing okay in unison mm-hmm. with discipline and persistence okay i consider the vegan movement to be the vanguard of a social movement that's going to do a, this lifestyle change mm-hmm. okay um so that that one thing that you do together that creates that movement has to be a substantial thing changing light bulbs is not a substantial thing mm-hmm. i mean you can you have to do it 
but uh, it's a it's a really minor blip whereas changing your food habits i mean you do that three times a day mm-hmm. okay and three times a day you're making a an impact on uh, um on on the on the on the earth essentially right so whether you're eating animal foods or plant foods it makes a huge difference if millions of people start doing it together billions of people start doing it together then you create social change right the example uh and i love this the example that you used is is the one of gandhi with uh right. with with garments right can you recount that yeah so the gandhi um gandhi was an activist first in south africa and i mean spent a lot of his life in south africa and he came to india exactly 100 years ago uh as an adult i mean he was he grew up in india but then he left to do his studies and then he came to south africa and exactly 100 years ago in 1915 he came to india and there's a picture of him getting off the boat and he's wearing a suit and a tie mm-hmm. he's like a lawyer yeah right? yeah it's hard to it's hard to picture <laughs> right <laughs> and then there's a picture of him 3 years later and or 4 years later and he's wearing these khadi clothes yeah So he started the Kadi movement in 1918. And his idea was actually genius. He was going to ask people of India to do one thing together. We all do that one thing, then we will tackle the the mighty British empire of mm-hmm. that era. And that was to change clothes, change from British made clothes to cotton clothes that were spun and woven in India. The called Kadar clothes. They were actually quite pop quite uh, um, popular outside the country as well kadar clothes so with that it was a simple act that anybody could do and join it was a substantial act because the textile industry in england was the largest industry they had at that time mm-hmm. so we are going to impact the largest industry in england and it was also a spiritual act because it united the people of india you know we could overcome all these divisions that we had in terms of religion caste you name it because you see the other guys wearing khadi clothes mm-hmm. just like you that one thing that one thing yeah and and the impact of that was what so within a dozen years uh, the textile mills of manchester had ba- had been bankrupt and the british came begging to negotiate with gandhi mm, that's so interesting right yeah and there are so many anal- uh, you know analogies to switching your diet right to that thing it's simple it is substantial you are asking somebody to you know make a pretty radical lifestyle change right. for most people um simple substantial and, and spiritual. definitely spiritual right right uh i think it's i think it's probably perhaps well i don't know because i didn't live there at the time but to ask somebody to change their attire might be easier than trying to get people to change their their eating habits people are very you know it's a very emotional thing for a lot of people yeah um well in india there was a lot of debate about khadi as well mm. if you read the magazines from that era you you realize he, gandhi had a lot of opposition in the beginning um people said well how could this be how could this affect the british at all okay so he had to go through a lot of explanations and then they came up with all kinds of arguments so al qadar is 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 costlier than 
British clothes because those mm-hmm. are all made in industrial, you know, industrial factories, right? So they were cheaper than handmade clothes. And so that's why Gandhi started wearing just the loincloth, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just, so he said, well, you can use very little cloth and still cover yourself. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right? So he started changing himself to show that it can be made cheaper, Right. So just like vegans, are, we face the same kind of... Uh, uh, it'll be more expensive. And, right. Yeah, it's going to be inconvenient. And right. what are you going to do when you go out to dinner or you travel? Right. All these all these arguments crop up around it that are really, you know, just mental constructs that prevent people from kind of mentally grappling with the reality of what it, what it is. Because it is very simple, actually. It's right. a very black and white thing. You're either ingesting animal products or consuming them in some way, uh, or you're not. Right, yeah. But in, there is, see, we all have these blinders, okay, in some area or the other, and we put these blinders on and we, we come up with rationalization to keep those blinders on because we are comfortable doing what we are doing. And uh, so it's, it is kind of human nature to be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing we have to focus on more, I think, is the suffering that's happening. You know, the suffering that's happening, um, not just for the animals, but also the people who are ingesting the animals. They're suffering a lot too, you know. Um, because you look at all the pollution that we have put into the environment. I mean, every product we buy has caused a lot of pollution mm-hmm. to go into the environment. And all that pollution, we think we've just pumped it up into the atmosphere and it disappears. No, it doesn't disappear. It comes down in the rain. It gets sucked up by plants. And the plants get eaten by animals. And they concentrate it in their bodies. They actually, you know, and then they give you a concentrated dose of those pollutants back to us. Mm -hmm. So we are at the top of the food chain. So we are getting it in in big, big chunks. Mm -hmm. So it is is going to become... um, Sort of, I mean, it's going to become toxic to eat these things. I don't know how long we can continue this because the circulation of these to- these toxins never goes away. You're just adding more and more each year. Mm-hmm. So, as a as you know, as a scientist, uh, as an engineer, and somebody who has studied uh, climate change for quite some time, uh, if you had to if you had to make an estimate that if we don't change our systemic way of feeding the planet mm-hmm. i mean what are we looking at and and how far off are some of these reper- repercussions uh, it's very hard to predict nonlinear systems um there are tipping points and then they just go off into an, another realm altogether but i rather than saying okay this is this is where you're going to hit the break i mean you're going to you're going to fall off the cliff mm-hmm. I think that there is a tipping point in people going vegan, okay? people joining the movement. Uh, I was at a conference in San Francisco of the IIT engineers, all the alumni got together, like 50,000 of us. You know? And uh, so they had Elizabeth Holmes for the keynote. And Elizabeth Holmes, she's the CEO of Theranos. Mm-hmm which is revolutionizing the medical diagnostics industry. Um, so she's like the youngest billionaire ever. And so she stands up on stage and the, and the audience is packed. Okay? It's only standing room. 
she finishes her presentation and then they ask her a question and she says well i'm a vegan <laughs> <laughs> and you know and people look wait a minute this lady that we look up to is a vegan then they had vinod kosla then in the next session and vinod kosla is an investor and he's one of the biggest investors in hampton creeks and mm-hmm. he talks on and on about plant based foods and people are getting this message now see some of these people sitting up on stage are investing in these things and are being vegan okay there was another philanthropist who was who also came on stage and he said i'm vegan mm-hmm. so three things that happened within like 2 hours span and you have all these engineers thinking about this now right mm. um so i think we need to make this an aspirational goal mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. So it's no longer the old oh which planet are you from when you say you're vegan right, right people yeah, know that No not anymore not anymore you know, it yeah. definitely has um a level of mainstream awareness and acceptance and and momentum that is unprecedented right you know and I see that only growing and that's exciting and interesting but I think at its core it still very much remains a grassroots thing yes, right. you know and I think to the extent that you know we want you know we would be inclined to sit around and wait for you know our elected representatives to pay attention to this UN report and start doing something about it is to ask them to defy the very kind of rules that have been set up around government exactly. because unless there's radical campaign uh, finance reform you know the big agricultural companies and the milk and dairy lobbies etc just hold too much sway and power over our legislative process. They've ha- they have it in in gridlock. So, I, you know, I don't think that you know that's going to be the way that things are going to change. And similarly with they they have a stranglehold on media as well because their media ad buys are so large that it becomes difficult to get objective reporting on these issues in, you know, our typical kind of mainstream outlets. No, it's it's more than it's actually systemic. see i mean i uh, when you are in a system you don't want to do anything that would break that system right so there is the fear of the loss of the known so you mm-hmm. even though this is awful at least it's still going right and you say <laughs> i don't want i don't want to derail this thing because it's still going so you will never get leaders of the system to break the system I mean, it's very hard to to have it. It's very rare to get a Gorbachev, mm-hmm. so to speak, right? Who could say, "Well, this thing is messed up, so I'm going to just change the whole thing." So you are going to get have to get pressure from below, right? So this is the grassroots. Yeah, this is like the Kadi movement. Yeah, and this, and and ultimately, if you get enough uh, critical mass around that grass movement, that influences uh, consum- consumer spending habits, and you know, we live in a capitalist society and the markets will adapt to serve the consumer desire right so if desire shifts away from uh you know hellman's mayonnaise to hampton creek to mm-hmm. a plant-based alternative because it's healthier and it's less expensive and it's more sustainable then right. the market will you know applaud that but we have to work within that system unless we overthrow the system right. by virtue of you know a grassroots movement i think right so the the, the an analogy with the kadi movement is is very apt because there also it was a grassroots movement and gandhi couldn't go and ask the british to move mm-hmm. and he did 
but they'd said, go away, right? So they only listened when... It impacted it, their bottom line. Exactly. Right. So the same thing is going to have to happen here. When it, when it impacts their bottom line, they'll have to come and talk to us. And, I mean, they will probably... Um, you'll see major changes happening at that point, you know? Right. So, and I see that also as an exponential process, right? Because it's exponential process, meaning it's, it, you see more and more vegans, and then until you reach about 10%, right. then you're going to see it shoot up, and then it'll become the normal thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it reaches a critical mass, and then it explodes, right? right? So then it's seemingly overnight, it becomes much bigger than it was the previous day. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, all right. So you're out in the world, you're, you're giving the, uh, the Al Gore keynote at some point you realize this isn't cutting it. You jump the fence, you start protesting Al Gore. <laughs> did he become aware? Like, did you yeah, ever yeah, have yeah. a conversation with him about that or not with him what directly, happened? but with his people, they <laughs> yeah. took me to a room and they like gave me the third degree. Right. So, really? Oh, <laughs> right. wow. And then I walked out. Yeah. Uh huh, and and was Climate Healers kind of formed on the on the shoulders of that experience? No, no, no. Climate Healers has been going on from before that, right? Uh, yeah. So you formed that in two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Uh huh. Yes. And yeah. it's so it's climatehealers.org, and it's a nonprofit. Uh, right. So explain the mission of this organization. The mission is to heal the climate, not just not just stabilize it at a high level of disruption, to heal it. It's like a patient who goes to a doctor and he says, and I've had this persistent fever for the past you know, few weeks. And the doctor examines the patient and he says, sorry, it's not just fever, you have, a can- you have cancer. And your fever is going to get worse. And the best I can do is to stabilize your fever at 102 mm-hmm. while the cancer rages on. And then you discover that he didn't tell you to stop smoking if you had stopped smoking, and if you had stopped eating all these carcinogens, your cancer could have been reversed. And your fever would go away. Right? Mm-hmm. So the UN um, IPCC is not telling us that we can do some lifestyle changes that would reverse the cancer. Mm-hmm. They're just telling us, if you can, we're going to continue doing this. Because if you look at all their projections, the economy is growing by a factor of three or four by the year 2100. We're going to continue deforesting from now until 2100. You know, and you say, how stupid are we, right? We yeah, know by 2100, we're going to have 11 billion people on the planet, most likely. That's their, I mean, they're, they're looking at projections like that, right? So 9 billion to 11 billion, and they're looking at, okay, we have to continue deforesting because we have to continue eating at we're the current have to rate. Service. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And they're assuming that livestock, livestock biomass is going to double, by the year 2050. So, I mean, how can the earth support that, right, without going overboard? Yeah, it's just not possible. Right. Um, it's impossible to continue to feed the planet the way that we've been feeding them as population continues to swell. And right. I think we're already at that tipping point and, and point of no return. Right. And yet the, the solution is staring us in the face the entire time, uh, but that message really isn't getting out there and... <clears throat> nor is it, you know, being heated on a mass level. Right, because, you know, I mean, most of the scientists are not vegan. I mean, in fact, I haven't found a single climate scientist mm-hmm. who's, who's professed to be vegan, right? So, Right, I mean, I feel like all of the people that are doing, not all of them, but, uh, you know, a good percentage of the people that are doing work in this area, all very smart, well-intentioned people, are trying to find ways to make our current system work 
to serve this growing, you know, swelling population, as opposed to taking a step back and saying, well, we need a new system. It's the system that's the problem, right? Right. right. So, you know, you're an outlier in that regard. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we see ourselves as presenting alternatives that would reverse the damage that's been done to mm-hmm. heal, the, heal the climate, heal the planet. And, um, and the way of going about that is what? So the way you're going about that is you, you look at what are the systemic changes and behavioral changes? What changes should be done? And what, what would the effect of that be? Right? If you make one change, what, uh, what does it do to the climate? So we analyze that and we, we present that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So breaking down individual behaviors and, and sort right. of tracking the impact of that right. behavior right. protracted out over time. Right. So for instance, if you t- ask the question, if the whole world goes vegan, how much carbon can be sequestered by regenerating forests? It's a very simple question. Right? Because right now we are de- deforesting. When, when we release land back to nature, it will reforest. We know that. So then the simple question is, how much carbon will be sequestered by those regenerating forests? Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I asked a professor at uh, University of Illinois, um, Professor Atul Jain. He's a land carbon expert. And he took out his model, and his grad student, Shiji Shu, worked on this. And they looked at the grasslands alone. So 35% of the land area of the planet is being used to raise grass, to feed cattle, to mm-hmm. feed livestock. So of that, they looked at all the grasslands that are adjacent to forests that can be reforested. And that happened to be just 40% of that. Mm-hmm. So about 41% of that. And on that land alone, 41% of the 35%, okay, on that they were able to sequester 265 gigatons of carbon, mm-hmm. which is more carbon than we have put into the atmosphere since the industrial era began. So, Right, so uh, in the this, last 200 years. In the last 200 years. Right. So that's, about, that's of course at maturity, so there's a transition that's going to have to happen. But the potential is enormous, and we haven't even begun to look at what can we do when we are forest not just reforest. Right. And we actively go and build soil and bring back forests that used to be there. Because over 10,000 years, we've been deforesting as human beings. Mm-hmm. You know? And the estimate is that we have, I mean, the Sahara, most of the Sahara, you know, that used to be all carbon-based forests. How long ago was that when it was forest? Well, 10,000 years ago is when the transition happened from the interglacial, from the Ice Age to the current interglacial period. And agriculture kind of began around mm-hmm. that time. Okay. Um, remember the the fertile crescent? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a desert. Not right? so fertile anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, well, I feel like there's an interesting thing happening culturally right now, and I'm interested in your in your opinion on this. Um, as we, you know, as Western culture becomes more intrigued by wellness and Mm -hmm. these you know the idea of living more sustainably is kind of having a zeitgeist moment at Mm -hmm. least in in terminology if not in actual behavior change Uh, and so i feel like industry has kind of cropped into this world because they realize there's money to be made around branding these ideas of sustainability and so what you're seeing and in my own personal experience you know i have friends who are not 
you know, they're not plant-based, they're not vegan, but they'll say, well, I make sure that all of the meat that I eat is sustainably harvested, it's grass-fed, uh, you know, and it's humanely, these animals are humanely treated, they have good lives, and, and, and therefore, they feel alleviated of whatever kind of guilt pang that they have. Like, they feel like they're, they're making a responsible choice, when in reality, that's quite an illusion, because mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly not what they've conjured up in their mind of some happy cow or, or, right. or chicken or, <laughs> or what have you. Uh, and by its very definition, you know, an animal raised for food is not sustainable under any circumstances, right? So, so there's sort of this, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like Madison Avenue kind of marketing uh, and, and specific language that is created and crafted around these products to perpetuate the very behavior pattern that is, uh, you know, causing the harm in, in the first place. Right. I mean, but you would expect them to do that, right? Because they are all about re- increasing their business. They And they see an opportunity to make money and they're going to do that. We have allowed a system that's built around this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because fundamentally, sustainability is very simple. You know, compassion for all life is sustainable. Violence towards any part of creation, when it's sustained, is unsustainable. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it can't be that easy. Yeah. Come on, Silas, you're talking crazy now. <laughs> it is that easy. It's simple. <laughs> yeah. Nonviolence. You know, go to town with it. It is comp- infinitely sustainable. Mm-hmm. But when you commit violence on something without any limit, you're going to kill it, or we're going to kill ourselves in the process of trying to kill it. Right. So violence is the root of all unsustainability. That's interesting. So violence cannot be part of the solution either in a a, a Gandhi-esque sort of way. Right. Cannot be part of the solution. This is why I think this is a very spiritual transition that's happening. We are undergoing a transformation as a species. Okay. And it this is, gets into your whole butterfly thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the butterfly thing. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it, this, what, what we are undergoing is similar to the transformation that a caterpillar does when it becomes a butterfly. A caterpillar, uh, when it's born, the first thing the caterpillar does is to eat the shell of the egg he came out of. Then he eats the leaf that the egg was on. Then he eats every leaf that he sees. It's like a voracious consumer, right? And then after two, three weeks, he stops. He builds a cocoon around himself and he meditates for a week. Mm -hmm. And he wakes up as a butterfly. And as a butterfly, she's a very discriminating consumer. She only sips nectar from flowers. And as she sips nectar from flowers, she pollinates the flowers and regenerates life. She undoes all the damage she did as a caterpillar. But, you know, in nature, both the caterpillar and the butterfly have their own purpose. They serve their own purpose. They are useful. Whatever they're doing is useful for the forest, useful for the ecosystem in both cases. So we are, I think, going through the, going through the metamorphosis from our caterpillar stage to the butterfly stage. Well, that's a very optimistic perspective. Um, 
I think we have to tell optimistic stories now. I mean, if we tell pessimistic stories, then we are going to basically doom ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Because we live out our stories. In fact, uh, I have a granddaughter, and my granddaughter took me to a movie. <laughs> basically, she said, "We, you know, we are going to see Cinderella." Uh-huh. So we went to see Cinderella, and you know, at first I thought, "Here is a children's movie, and I'm going to sit with her and enjoy her company." And then I heard Cinderella say something that perked my attention, and I said, "I better pay attention to this movie." <laughs> what did she say? She said. Uh, have courage be kind and all will be well hmm. very simple right have courage be kind and all will be well and i think it is true for all of us as humans have human beings be kind is be kind to all life not just to your neighbors not just to your family but to all life if you are kind to all life which is compassion for all creation then all will be well mm-hmm. that is the sustainability mantra mm-hmm. right And then the second thing she said was just because it is what is done doesn't mean it is what should be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cinderella is quickly overtaking Gandhi as your uh, <laughs> prophet of the day. Right. I mean this is what we face, right? As uh, we've been eating this way all along and so we've been doing this all along. Doesn't mean it's what should be done today because our situation is very different from what it was 2000 years ago when they came up with that custom. You see? So all these cultural things that we have brought along we have to question now because we are in a completely different environment mm-hmm. than when it was initiated mm-hmm. and it probably made sense 2000 years ago i mean i've seen i mean i have tremendous respect for what our ancestors have done you know every one of our ancestors not just indian and the third thing she said was imagine the world as it should be not the world as it is mm-hmm. So then you'll work towards the world as it should be. See, mm-hmm. if we all imagine a world in which we are sustainable, we are fundamentally equal, so we don't have wars and we have peace, we will work towards that. Right? But if we say the current system is going to continue, so the violence is going to continue. I mean, have you ever had a single day without somebody dropping bombs somewhere? Mm-hmm. You know, President Obama has a kill list. that he signs off on every day you know so so if we imagine the world as it should be not the world as it is then we will all work towards that so how does that translate into the actions of the everyday person who's listening to this have courage be kind <laughs> and all will be well <laughs> This is a closed loop. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, no, I think, you know, everything we do we have to ask, okay, what is behind it? I mean, what where did this come from? You say we buy a product, right? We don't really understand most of the time what happened to get that product to our table. It could be something as simple as even, you know, strawberries. and he discovered that the people who are picking strawberries are being abused they're enslaved they're you know and they're being paid a pittance and you say well maybe i should be going local so i understand the farmer i'm you know so i um so i know where my food comes from 
right? So, so that's one way of saying, okay, I, I'm not going to participate in the cruelty of the industrial food system. I'm going to go local. Okay? Or you say, well, if this apple is cheaper than this apple, so which one should I get? Or this fruit is... And you say, well, this one was made with chemicals. So they poured a lot of chemicals to kill all the pesticides, the pests, the so-called pests. And this was done organically. That's you're not being kind to the insects that you call pests, mm-hmm. right? So you you slowly switch to a local, organic, vegan eating lifestyle. That becomes that's love. I think Gene Bauer would say that that is aligning your actions with your values. Exactly. Right. It's about being clear about what your values are, and then trying to make sure that what you're doing is is uh consistent with that right but the problem is we walk we we walk around with blinders on and and a lot of those blinders are either conscious or on some level of you know unconscious willingness to not know like it's just easier to not know because then you don't feel then you don't feel that dissonance right Right, like if you don't ask the question where is my food coming and you just Mm -hmm. purchase the food then the question never arises right to ask See, there are a lot of us, that, I mean, there are a lot of us who are in a position to ask questions and answer them and make choices that align with our values. We can afford to do that. We can make those choices. Some of us, I mean, there are a lot of us actually, right, who can do that. There are a lot of us who are in a, who are in a rat race or in a mill, you know, who are sort of stuck in this daily grind who are not going to think about things like this because they have more important things to think of in their immediate family life. They are the ones who will come along once enough of us at the top do this. Mm -hmm. They'll come along because things will change around them automatically. Right? Um, And then there will be the ones who are stragglers who will not change most likely they'll have to just die off and, and you know, that's the way they will die off, right? Mm-hmm. So, in the sense that, you know, there are some people who are not going to change. That's okay. That's the way things are. But new generations come along. The new generation right now, the younger generation, I mean, they, they have no qualms about, you know, um, gay marriage. They have no qualms about skin color and things like that. So, they don't see those differences as much as our generation saw them. I think they ask more questions too, you mm-hmm. know, and they demand a level of transparency right. uh, that really was not something that was part of our generation. Right. Yeah. And that's exciting. It I is. Think. I mean, it is yeah. an exciting time to be alive because we're in the, we're in the transition period, the transformation period, mm-hmm. you know, and you're witnessing the butterfly being born. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. I like your wings. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so tell me about some of the the work that you're doing with uh, with climate healers. I know you're very involved in this issue of uh, cooking in India, the impact of of wood burning stoves on the right. environment, and trying to find sustainable solutions for that. So, explain right. that to me a little bit. So, um, I mean, this again started with that, with observing that forest in Rajasthan and, and understanding why it is dying off. And you, uh, as I said, livestock is one of the major reasons for it. But the other major reason is um, wood being extracted for, for cooking. Mm-hmm. 
Now, normally we consider wood being extracted for cooking as a sustainable activity because wood grows on trees and you take some and you burn it, you know, so it would have fallen off and anyway decayed and become CO2. So all the woman did, all the pe- person did was to accelerate the process. So that's how we justify it. But not at the level at which we are doing it. You know, there are 600 million households that are burning wood for cooking. And together, they're burning about 2 billion tons of wood. Mm-hmm. So, And is it wood itself, or is it wood that, that is turned into charcoal? Like, how does it work? No, it's wood itself. It's so it's wood basically itself. dead wood from trees, uh, wood that's fallen off on the ground. They bring it and they dry it. Uh, if it's not dry already, and they chop it up and they burn it. So it's a daily, ac- I mean, um, it's a daily activity in the village. Women go at least three to four times a week to collect wood. Mm-hmm. They bring back like 60 to 70 pounds of wood on their head every time they go. And uh, and it's a really tough um, task, you know, to go collect wood. It takes about an hour for them to walk to where they're collecting wood. It takes them an hour to collect the wood. It takes them an hour and a half to walk back because they're carrying a heavy load. And uh, it lasts them two to three days, 70 pounds. And uh, they are burning this wood for making... They're for cooking their food, for making their chai in the morning, and then during winter it's also for heating. Okay. And how, how many people are doing this? How many million? Uh, worldwide, there are three billion people who use biomass for cooking. Mm. So it's about six hundred million households. And yeah. biomass is that's a broader term, right? So right. That includes it's wood, wood and it's, there's always a mixture. Okay, there's wood that is um, cow dung, dried cow dung. They use um, corn stalk, I mean, other things, other biomass as well. So, but mostly it's wood. But it's all carbon. As far as I'm concerned, it's carbon that was sequestered by photosynthesis. It's precious because it was sequestered, and we should be keeping it underground Mm -hmm. because we can't afford to keep sending it back up. And it's being turned back up and sent it to the atmosphere as CO2 or carbon. It's black carbon. So and that black carbon, what happens to that? Like, so the, walk me through the kind of you know the sort of step by step. So, like when when you have incomplete burning of wood, it uh, you get soot, a black carbon. So it's smoke, soot, right? And that black carbon goes into the atmosphere, and is taken by wind currents and deposited on the ice in the Himalayas, or deposited in the ice in the Arctic, or in Greenland. So we've seen all this ice now becoming darker and darker and darker. And when they become dark, basically they absorb sunlight. Mm-hmm. Rather right? than reflect it. Yeah. Rather than reflect it. And when they absorb sunlight, they heat up the ice faster. So the ice melts faster. So, and the fact that it also absorbs sunlight makes it a greenhouse gas, right? Because basically it's, it's increasing the heat that's being trapped. So black carbon... Um, is a very significant greenhouse gas in that sense. And uh, India has 160 million households that use biomass for cooking. Mm. So um, we've been working in this, this region of Rajasthan trying to address this issue. How do we reduce their wood use? So the first idea, the, you know, I'm an engineer, right? So I have this brilliant idea that I can <laughs> build new things. <laughs> so 
I said, okay, here's an engineering challenge. Let's build a solar cooker that can cook their food. And their food happens to be really thick rotis. These are flatbreads made with corn or um, millets. And it takes a lot of energy to cook those. And it takes a lot of concentrated energy to cook those. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to make the equivalent of a gas stove with solar energy. That's not hard. But what is hard is to make a, an, an, a stove the equivalent of a gas stove while the cook can stand near it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Otherwise, what, it would like heat the whole house? Or, it would heat the know. cook, right? right? I mean, if because most solar stoves that have that kind of energy concentration, they're intended for making big, big you know, pots of rice or something like that. So the assumption is that you put the pot, focus the solar stove and then you walk away mm-hmm. whereas to make rotis you have to stand there and flip it around mm-hmm. you know? so it's an interactive process so you don't want a stove that would cook the cook so um, so it took us a while and we came up with a stove that met our requirements engineering requirements and then we went and deployed it in the village uh, we gave them five stoves and within six months not a single one was being used mm, because because it was culturally the exact opposite of what they're doing now. You know, because they cook inside, now we are asking them to cook outside. Uh-huh. They cook sitting down, we're asking them to cook standing up. Um, right, so you can't disrupt the environment to do it. It has to work within the, their sort of social construct and the right. environment that they're used to. Right, they cook during the, I mean, they cook early in the morning or late in the evening when the sun is not out. And with the solar stove, they have to cook when the sun is out. So anyway, it was a completely disruptive thing and they said they just didn't want to do it. And I realized at that point that uh, I can't ask them to change so drastically, you know. And again, if solar stoves are such a great idea, how come the rich people are not, are not mm-hmm. using it, right? So, so we had to be humble and we say, okay, uh, now I have to sit down and figure out how to do an intervention that works within their cultural context. So this year, we, we tried these efficient stoves. These efficient stoves are still biomass stoves. They use wood. Um, but they're supposed to reduce the wood consumption by 40%, 50%, mm. whatever. So we took um, three different efficient stoves that are um, like the top of the line. And we took three samples of each. We went to nine different households and we rotated them around. And we did surveys. We asked them to cook with these stoves and asked them whether they like it or not like it. And we measured how much wood they were using. So we did this engineering assessment, right? And we could clearly see why they don't like them. Just by watching them and and talking to Mm -hmm. them. Because these stoves, uh, either they're, I mean, they're made of metal. So they get hot on the outside. So it's a hazard for children. So and so the women said, our stove, it's got mud on the outside, mm-hmm. so it's insulated. The opening for the stove is too narrow. So they had to chop the wood lengthwise. Mm-hmm. And it's that's more work for them. It's a pain in the neck to chop wood lengthwise. You can chop it this way, you know, but this way it's, it's painful. So they wouldn't do it. As soon as they encountered a log that wouldn't go into the hole, they would just go to their original stove and they'd abandon the stove. Uh, the flame was too narrow, so it was good for a metal pan, but they don't use metal pan. They use a mud pan mm-hmm. for cooking their rotis. Yeah, to disperse the heat over 
a wider area. Right. So you have to disperse the heat to a wider area. So their stove is built like that. So, and they love cooking rotis on mud and then eating that because it brings the taste of the soil into the roti. Mm. You even can even donate to them a, a, an iron pan. They won't use it. Right. So, so it was clear that the, the efficient stores are not going to work. Uh, but we asked them, so how much would you pay for these? And they were roughly, each one had cost us about $50 retail. And the best we could get was like $5, $10, right. you know. <laughs> Five, to, to get something that they're not going to use. Right. So, uh, so then we, we asked them to cook with their stove and we observed what they were doing with their stove. And we noticed that the inefficiency was coming from all the, the embers that were falling off the edge of the wood as it was burning. The embers would fall off and they would pile up. And those embers were the source of all the soot. And they were the source of inefficiency as well, because that's not complete combustion, mm-hmm. right? So we said, so how could we just reduce those embers? How could we get the wood to burn more completely? And then, you know, every fireplace, if you notice, has a grate. We put the wood on top of a grate. Mm-hmm. They don't have a grate there. I mean, it's, they're putting the wood on the floor, mm-hmm. right? So we made a grate, a simple grate that would... Um, that had would allow airflow from below and the holes were too small for the embers to fall through but they're big enough for the ash to fall through right almost like a like a, a little cage for the for the fire so it could burn more completely right and therefore use less wood and create less carbon emissions exactly right so we we made one in the local market and have had the women use them and we were shocked at how much it reduced the wood in their stove. So their stove. How much? So that woman, the woman was using 2.9 kgs for cooking her meal without the grate. And with the grate, it went down to 1.1 kg. Mm. So more than, that's like 60, 60%. 70%. Yeah, 60% yeah. reduction. <clears throat> and it was better than even the efficient stoves. With the efficient stoves, she had used 1.8 kg. So we were shocked. And then we said, well, this couldn't be true. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how can it, such a simple solution actually work, right? So we had it tested at a cookstore testing center in Udaipur. And the official numbers are that it reduces wood use by 63% and it reduced soot by 89%. Wow. So I went and... But soon, the important question is, do they like using it? Right. So... When I got those test results, I immediately booked a flight to India <laughs> so that I, I, we could go and deploy a thousand of them in four villages. And we first did a um, survey where we took a sample of the grate and went to 10 different households, asked the women, do you like them or not like them? And, and it was unanimous. Why wouldn't I not use it? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's, it does changes nothing for me. Right. right? It's uh, half the trips of carrying wood around right. for nothing else. More than that, it was less smoke. You know, I mean, she's suffering with the smoke burning her eyes. She's cooking indoors. And so why? she said, I, I can hardly feel any smoke with this. Mm. So, so anyway, it became um, quite apparent that it was, at least they were going to use it. So we're deploying a thousand of them and we're going to go back six months later in December and um, survey again and see how well 
it's taken on. Right, and they, they don't cost anything, right? It costs them a dollar to get one of these things? Is that what I, I read something about that? Right, I mean, in volume, it's going to cost a dollar, but we since we only did like a thousand of them, it's costing us like four dollars each. Right. But uh, it's, uh, you know, as far as the cost is concerned, the amount of carbon it saves is so huge. Even with the current price of carbon credits in Europe, you can fund this thing very easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Easily because um, the, the carbon reduction is going to be over multiple years because that grate is not going to go away for three to four years. Right. Right. And weren't you uh, doing something with uh, incent- incentives by giving them a cell phone? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's that about? Well, we initially when we started Climate Healers, it was 2007, no one in the village had cell phones. And cell phones, they wanted them. They wanted communications, right? So it was a good incentive if you could offer them cell phones. Right, be part of my pilot study and right, I'll give you a right. phone. I got I can you. give you a phone like that. But by the time I brought the solar cookers, uh, three years later, uh, 40% of the village already had cell phones. <laughs> How's it going to work anymore? It doesn't uh, work anymore. And then you say, where did you get these cell phones? I mean, it's like proliferating. All right. around. And uh, they said the local, co- the contractor in the city was giving away cell phones for free mm-hmm. to able-bodied men hmm. so that he could call them to come and work in the city for construction. Right. That's a smart man. Because... He can pay these village people half the price as the, the worker in the city uh, was asking. Uh-huh. So it's really a method. So capitalism is providing these free cell phones right. because they can get labor at a lower cost. Right. So that's amazing. So, you know, assuming that you can get these, you know, these, uh, these devices into all of these homes, I mean, that's a huge, that'll have a huge impact. But as an engineer, you still have to come up, you realize that you still have to come up with this solar stove, right? You, <laughs> yes, you still yes, have yeah. to invent that so that yeah. it works. There is a, there is a team working <laughs> right? on it in oh, the industry. Because yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. we're trying to store the energy and then release it at night and the next morning and mm-hmm. so on, yeah. And so is Climate Healers doing this all on its own or are you in partnership with other NGOs? I mean, how does that function? We work mainly through partnerships. Uh, we have partnerships with academic institutions. We partner with the University of Iowa. We partner with the University of Illinois. UC Berkeley has done mm-hmm. work with us. Georgia Tech has done work with us. And several universities in India, IIT Madras has worked with us. And we work with the uh, NGOs, uh, in India, in, we have NGOs now in Ghana who are working with us. So, um, really, it cannot be done with just one organization. Right. All of us have to get together to work on this. And I tell people, you know, when they ask me, how many people are in Climate Healers? I say 7.4 billion. Mm-hmm. We all have to do this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when's the next kind of phase of this? Are you mass producing these things right now? Or, I mean, you just came back from India. So right. what were you doing there on this trip? On this trip, we had about uh, a thousand of them manufactured and distributed to the four villages um, in Rajasthan. And uh, we then took samples and we gave it to a number of NGOs. So we gave some samples to an NGO called Seva, which is Self-Employed Women's Association. Mm-hmm. And they have 1.1 million members, and they've been looking for a cook stove solution for a long time. 
um we shipped a bunch to an ngo in hyderabad so uh it's just seeding right and different area. and then have them try it out you know try it out and see what you think and then um we can manufacture more of them if they need it right, right? that's cool um i want to turn the conversation a little bit back towards uh deforestation and desertification um one of the things that always comes up <clears throat> and i've gotten a lot of emails about this uh, is the work of Alan Savory, mm-hmm. right? Who is out there and kind of has a lot of energy around him and a lot of people paying attention to his work, you mm-hmm. know, that I think really kind of entered mainstream consciousness as a result of his TED Talk. But essentially, his philosophy is sort of at odds with what you're saying, which is the solution to desertification is to increase <laughs> grazing, right? That That if we had more animals kind of freely grazing the planet... That this would that this would cure this problem that we're having. So I'm interested in your perspective on that. You know what, theory. Alan, yes, what Alan Savory is talking about is what our ancestors used to do. You know, I mean, they used to um, keep livestock and maintain the the um, fertility of their soil, right? But as population increased, and as the livestock population increased. I mean, with the current levels where we are 7.5 times the biomass and megafauna that used to exist sustainably in, uh, in the past. I mean, are we as human beings so hubristic to think that we can beat nature at her own game and that too by a factor of 7.5 and can make it sustainable? No way, mm-hmm. right? We know that Native ecosystems have the maximum carbon sequestration in any given area. If you disrupt a native ecosystem, your carbon sequestration on land is going to go down. This is well known, Mm -hmm. right? So if we take a forest and convert it to grassland and then we add all these things, we're going to get less carbon sequestration there. And the amount of biomass that you can can, um, raise on that is going to be less than what nature did. So there is no way to do this in a, in, and beat nature. Mm-hmm. So this is why when, when I hear that you can now triple or double the volume of livestock, I say we are smoking something. I mean, this is not possible. Mm-hmm. Who's saying that? Hmm? That's what, you know, when you look at Alan Savory's message, it is you have to increase the density of livestock, is what he says. You have to increase the density of livestock. Well, we already have. What about the, the, the just the methane, <laughs> you know, production alone mm. there, or the water use required for that, and not that doesn't even get into land use. Like to me, and maybe I'm missing something, and right. I'm certainly not an expert in this field by any stretch of the imagination. But um, we don't have enough land. Like even if even if we implemented, let's say we implemented his philosophy completely. Mm. Is there enough, would there even be enough land to support? I mean, there would just be livestock everywhere roaming through the streets. And I mean, is that? It's already happening in India, right? I mean, there's livestock roaming through the streets and um, the density of cattle in India is nine times the density of cattle in the U.S. And um, mainly because Indians... Well, that's, a, you know, that, that's, that's you know, rooted in Hinduism, though, is it not? It's rooted in the lacto-vegetarianism. This is why I was a lacto-vegetarian and, and then I became vegan when I saw what was happening to the forest. Because in India, 
we drink a lot of milk and we don't eat so much beef so we don't kill the cows cows are sacred so the cow lives for 25 years eating the forest mm-hmm. every day so you say well if you drink milk you started exploiting the cow right then maybe we should finish it finish the exploitation meaning you have to eat some beef to compensate for the milk you're drinking so it's almost like right yeah so it's not it's not a black and white thing right, right? so by virtue of all of these cows eating up you know basically encroaching on the forest land then there's less habitat for the other animals right, right like absolutely. it's encroaching on on the tiger's you know right. sort of domain exactly that's why the tiger population is down so much is the tiger population used to be 100,000 just 100 years ago and now it's down to like 1300 1400 so but i think one of the things that people miss in this is i mean it's different in india because of your cultural perception of this animal the 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 cow but i think people think well if everyone went vegan there would just be cow we have so many cows who would who you know what what are we going to do with all these cows but they don't understand that we're we're specifically raising these cows like if we stopped raising first of all no one's the whole world is not going to go vegan overnight so this right. is not going to happen right you know that way it's going to be a gradual process and as we um move in that direction we're going to be raising fewer animals for food like it would that would that would course correct itself right i mean cow impregnation is a profession right these yeah these animals need to be inseminated <laughs> right. right in order to reproduce right and so all those professions will will start dying out you know because we are abusing these animals when we impregnate them by hand uh, they are not having sex you know i mean this is mm. not they are not having families and therefore raising their own children so this is all being done forcibly through Uh, industrial methods so yeah as the the demand for livestock products decreases there'll be less and less being produced by industry mm-hmm. and what is the the difference in impact uh between a person who says i'm a good environmentalist uh you know i'm driving a chevy volt or a prius or you know an electric car and I, or i ride my bike to work and i don't take very many showers um but yeah i like my meat versus somebody who's driving a normal car to work every day uh but they're eating a plant-based diet like how does that balance out balances out in favor of the person who's eating a plant-based diet okay it's he's less environmentally destructive in general you can come up with outlandish scenarios where you the guys flying a private jet every single right, day yeah, but things like yeah, that yeah. you know so uh, but overall it's it's just raising awareness and raising our consciousness and raising our consciousness about the violence that is around us see that's the main blinder we have is that there is violence all around that's happening on our behalf that we don't want to know about mm-hmm. right um and we really see how every product is made whether it is chocolate i mean chocolate you know there's so much child slavery going on for for uh, um getting all those cocoa beans and turning them into chocolate that's violence some poor child didn't want to do that and is being forced to do that at the point of a gun and when we pay money to buy that we're actually supporting it we're saying that's okay mm-hmm. you know so it's raising our consciousness about what is really going on the amount of violence that's going on and realizing that it's non-violence that's sustainable not violence 
Right. I mean, I think that changing your plate is a very powerful uh, thing to do. Um, and it certainly helped me relieve myself of some of that dissonance uh, that existed between values and actions. But it doesn't stop there. No. You know, the road gets narrower. And as you kind of take the blue pill in the matrix and you start to open your eyes as to how the world functions, then you it applies to basically every consumer purchase that you make. Everything right. from, you know, the precious iPhone that right. I have right here sitting next to me that I, you know, can't imagine living a day without. But, you know, and I know on some level that there's a factory in China where there's some issues and I don't really want to think about that. Right. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to think about how the clothes are made that I'm wearing, but I'm becoming more hip to that. And I've right. made more conscious decisions around those things. Um, and it doesn't end there. It continues and continues and continues. Right. So it really is on a macro level, a conversation about consumerism in general and raising awareness around that and, and having the courage and the willingness to ask those questions and, and to, uh, you know, be inquisitive. We mm -hmm. don't want to do that. And our system is set up to, to specifically prevent that, to keep us in that foggy haze. Right. I mean, the, the numbers, you know, and basically um, if you're concerned about your paycheck or how you're going to pay the next bill, you're not going to think about things like this. Mm -hmm. right? You're more concerned yeah, about Yeah, these those. are rich white guy problems. <laughs> you know? Exactly, yeah. So yeah. how do you begin to, uh, you know, shift that? In terms of, like, advocacy and mm -hmm. how you communicate with people, um, I think it's really important to to be conscious of your approach to that. Like, And so if you look at, like, veganism, for mm -hmm. example, there are all different kinds of people that, that, that employ a wide variety of different communication tactics, right? You have people at PETA that are, that are you know, throwing blood on, on women that are wearing, you know, furs, uh, all the way down to, you know, the more kind of Gandhi-esque approach, which is just to kind of be the lighthouse and stand in the light and just pay attention to your own behaviors and not preach, right? And so there's a spectrum right. of approaches. So where do you like fall on that spectrum? Well, see, Gandhi has also been uh, mischaracterized, in my opinion, because he, he never really said, be the change you want to see. And he wasn't a passive activist. I mean, he was an activist. He, he was quite militant about making people wear khadi. In the Navjivan magazine in 1925, he said, I consider it my duty to use every available means at my disposal to persuade people to wear khadi. Mm -hmm. So this was not, was not a passive man who would wear khadi and say, look at me. He went out and told people, please wear khadi, right? So activism is absolutely essential for social movements. But we have to be nonviolent in our activism as well. So the ends never justify the means. You know? So when you when you attack people or throw people you know, or or abuse people when they are not doing what you think they should be doing, you are not going to win them over. Mm -mm. Right? And so those are the things I say. You know, yes, we have to be activists. We have to. I've participated in protests with direct action everywhere. I've gone and you know stood with them in Whole Foods and talked about what is really going on behind those products that they're selling. And that kind of activism is essential to, to basically snowball the movement. Okay? Um, 
as far as consumerism is concerned you know i've i've realized that it's everywhere i mean it's the violence is everywhere in everything we do mm, everything we do is there's pollution being poured out into the streams and some fish is dying so it's like so you say where do we start right so the way i did that was to say if i really need if i think i need some product that's not an essential product i just write it down in a piece of paper i don't go buy it mm-hmm. i do a buy everything day Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I heard you only you go shopping once a year. <laughs> once right? a year. I mean, that doesn't include like food in a sense, right. right? But like for things that you would like, right? right. You yeah. indulge yourself one time a year. Right. One time a year. So, what I, did you buy on your last big shopping spree? <laughs> I bought only toothpaste and <laughs> shaving items and yeah. stuff like that. So, I really didn't need anything beyond that because uh-huh. my clothes are still lasting me. You know, I'm I'm doing fine with what I have. and as far as uh, buying my even my essential stuff if so as even my travel i'm very conscious of it and i say i'll only travel if i know i'm advancing my cause which is healing the climate so if i have to fly to india i will fly to india i'm not going to spend you know 3 months going in a ship because it has lower carbon footprint i'm going to fly because i need to do a lot of things you know but i'll only fly for those reasons or I'll only drive for those reasons. So Right, so you do like an engineering calculus on the the sort of you do like a profit and loss statement on the impact of your behavior when you make these decisions that are, that might might release some uh some carbon emissions into the environment. Right. I look at these as tools, okay? So a plane is a tool, car is a tool. I mean, but what are the tools being used for? Are we using the tool to just I mean, are we using this to go for pleasure? if i i don't get any pleasure anymore going and sightseeing things and i mean i i have so much fun doing my work so much more fun doing my work so i'd rather just use all these things just for that purpose mm-hmm. you see i really think that these tools are available for us to do this healing work and um, we shouldn't just allow all these tools to be used only by the people who are destroying the planet you know mm-hmm. Those of us who want to heal the planet should get into it and start right. using them as well. Have you uh, followed this woman, B. Johnson, who ha- is the zero waste home person? Do you know no, about her? No, I haven't. Uh, I got to send you her website. Oh, please! Yeah, do. she's amazing. I heard her speak at a, a wellness conference a couple months ago, and she lives in Marin County with her family. She has two kids, and she just decided to see if they could live with uh, creating the least amount of waste. possible. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And over a number of years she refined her techniques and experimented with all different kinds of things, but <clears throat> she's got it down to this science now where she held up like a mason jar and she said this is the the mass uh, amount of garbage that our family produced last year and mm-hmm. it all fit into one jar. Right. And she shows pictures of her home. She, she you know, it's like upper middle class, but it's a it's very minimal, but everything, you know, they just have the least amount of each thing that they need and you know they don't have right. any plastic or right. and everything is like you know all they don't use any single use items they don't accept anything into their house like right. it's amazing like it was incredibly inspiring it's intimidating right. too but also you know she's a very beautiful woman and their her you know kids look healthy and they look happy and 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 when you see that who's somebody who's living in the modern world you know with normal jobs and all of that kind of thing uh that they're able to to do that really makes you think about <clears throat> you know how we behave 
you know, with the, the level of single use items that we go through on a daily basis is insane, you know, and the plastics and all of that. It's really crazy. Yeah, the statistic is that 99% of what we buy, we don't use within six months. Mm. So we are just basically 99% of our purchases are useless after six months. So, right. you know, clearly there is a lot of uh, excess that we can cut out from that. But we're not trying to export that kind of lifestyle to developing countries. Right. So when you're talking about the the caterpillar turning into the butterfly and this kind of mass awakening that we're having, and I feel like that is happening Mm -hmm. in, in, in the United States... You know, meanwhile, I look at China and, I, and, and India, you know, and you see the rise of the middle class there. And they're, they're like, yes, now we can finally do what all these people in America have been doing. And they want to live the good life and they want to consume these products that we've been consuming. And we're happy to export that, right. those items and that lifestyle over to them. And that becomes, that compounds the problem, obviously. Right. But they're actually learning much, much faster than we did in America because, um, you know, it's not just buying these things. You also, you get the baggage with it, right? So you get two-thirds of Americans are either obese or overweight. Uh, 49% of Americans are either on uh, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication or on illegal drugs on a daily basis. So, I mean, these are statistics that they are also beginning to see very quickly. And they're saying, wait a minute. Just 20 years ago, I didn't have this. <laughs> Just 30 years ago, I didn't have this. So how come I'm getting it? So they're beginning to answer those questions faster as well. So there's a tremendous acceleration of the process that's happening mm. in those countries. This is like they're leapfrogging. Okay? Right. So just like they leapfrog the, the landline telephones and went right, straight, straight to cell to, phones, right, exactly. they're going to leapfrog a lot of these intermediate stages that uh, Western countries went through and get to the final state much, much faster. Than. There you go with this optimism again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I see it happening, you know. I mean, your example of uh, Bia Johnson, is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so apt because she's, she's an embodiment um, based on your description of the first mantra of the Upanishads which says use Upanishads you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. the first mantra of three ISO Upanishads says uh, and his rough translation is take just what you need and no more for the earth and all her bounty does not belong to you but to the Lord that's a beautiful place to end it but I can't let you go without asking you one last question which is <clears throat> for people that are listening and they're ready to make, uh, you know, a different choice. What is the, what is the one thing that they could do first? That's simple, that's accessible to everybody um, and doable that you would suggest to try to reduce their carbon footprint and, you know, live more sustainably. Transition to a plant-based diet. I mean, that's the number one thing I would say. And within that, I would say, Try to eat local and try to eat seasonal fruits and vegetables so so that you're not ordering apples from Chile, in, uh, uh, but apples from Washington. So the way I do it is I go to the store and I buy the three cheapest fruits and the three cheapest vegetables that are organic. And they all tend to be local, organic, and seasonal. Mm-hmm. So... I think there is, this is the one thing that we're all going to do together. 
to make the transition. This is the start of the transformation, the vegan movement. And it is shaping up beautifully. I mean, if you look at Germany and how fast they're turning vegan, you look at Israel and see how fast they're turning vegan. And you look at California, you know. The proliferation of vegan restaurants. My God, when I turned vegan in 2008, it was difficult. Mm-hmm. And now I, I wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. And you look now, you know, it's it's so easy. It's everywhere in the mainstream supermarkets. You know, you get vegan products everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Germany has its own vegan supermarkets, right? So I um, heard about that. I'm going there this fall. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to Frankfurt. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, well, that's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If, uh, if you want to learn more about Silesh and his work, the best place to go is climatehealers.org. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other places or resources that you could point people towards where they could begin their own process of learning more about you and the things that you are talking about? That's the place. Yeah. That's the place. Right. All right, cool. And, uh, you know, whatever books or other kind of things that we talked about during this podcast I'll put in the show notes to the episode. So, all right, where are you headed now? What's next? Oh, I have to go and uh, talk to a nonprofit that's going to look at our grade. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. There is a book they can read as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. A book called I forgot about that. Carbon Dharma. Carbon Dharma, which yeah. is available on Amazon. So that sort of details my story until 2011. Mm-hmm. I'm writing a follow-up book called Carbon Yoga. I like that. So that so dharma is what is the right thing to do. Yoga is how do you do it. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, this one hopefully will come out by the end of the year. I like so. that. Awesome. That's exciting. Well, maybe you can come back and talk to me again when uh, the book is released, and we can talk more about that. I would love to. All right. Very good. Thank you so much. I Thank appreciate you. it. You're an inspiration. Keep doing what you're doing. We need more guys like you. And uh, I love your message, man. So anything I can do to help you, support you, and and help get the word out about the work that you're doing, I'm happy to do so. That's wonderful. We need more people like you as well. We're all, like you said, we're all all in it together. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Peace. Plants. All right, everybody. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Two big Stanford brains in the same week. First, Craig Heller the whole cooling glove thing, and then Silesh with the solar-powered stove. Uh, Both Stanford guys, pretty cool, right? Uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you guys got something out of that, and it helped uh, raise your awareness about climate issues and made you think a little bit more deeply about certain things that concern all of us. Again, make sure to visit the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com to read up, learn more, and take your knowledge base and podcast experience to the next level. If you speak German... Our book, The Plant Power Way, is now available in German language edition. Go to Amazon.de. Finding Ultra is also in the German language edition as well. Same uh, German publisher. Uh, that, that edition came out really great as well. If you're in the L.A. area or your visits bring you nearby my neck of the woods, um, check out a few of our businesses that we're partnered with. Joy Cafe, it's our organic plant-based and gluten-free eatery in the Westlake Village area. Uh, When I'm in town, when I'm not in Frankfurt, Germany, usually I'm eating lunch there. Uh, We also partnered with the Karma Baker, which is a vegan and gluten-free bakery also in the Westlake Village area of Los Angeles. So 
again, I've said it before, but the podcast is a great way to kind of serve a global audience with this message. But uh, it also feels really good to kind of invest in my local community and kind of give back by helping uh, provide food that's consistent with my values. It feels really great. So if you're in the area, again, it would be great to see you come by Joy or see you come by the Karma Baker, both my friends and uh, great products for you guys. For all your plant power needs, visit richwell.com. Check out the Plant Power Way in English language version at amazon.com. We have signed copies of that and Finding Ultra at richroll.com. We've got nutrition products. We've got 100% organic cotton garments. We've got plant power tech tees, all kinds of cool, awesome stuff all there to help you take your life and your health to the next level. That's it, you guys. Uh, I'll see you in a couple days. Hopefully I'll be a little bit more coherent. Again, I'm pretty jet lagged today. Hey man, I did my best. Give me a break. It's hard to put these things together from the road, but uh, I'm trying. Apologies again for being a day late, but uh, I hope the listen was worth your while. And I'll see you guys back here in a couple days with another great episode of the RRP. So make it great, everybody. Peace, plants, and namaste. Yeah.